0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me Chris Stammel-Major. In this episode we're continuing John Coldwell's Desperate Voyage and we're on Chapter 13. I found Tagus Cove an unusually snug protection. In fact, ideal. Except that there was no means to do the hull work. Not that Pagan was directly in need of it, but since I was planning a non-stop run to Sydney, I felt I wanted a clean before setting forth. To the west of me lay more than 7,000 miles of ocean. There were a little over two months before the hurricane season would set in. If I was to cross these waters in safe time, there could be no stop en route. Therefore I esteemed it a saving in time to do the cleaning here, where I had a sufficient tide and safe harbour such as Post Office Bay, and I could get Mary's letter in a manner of speaking on its way by the antiquated postal system. So I resolved to beat around to Floriana the next day, but first I wanted to check the standing and running gear thoroughly. I rigged a bosun's chair to the main halyard and hoisted myself aloft. By mid-afternoon, I had painted the 35-foot mast and tightened the screws in her slide. In addition, I had renewed all halyards, put up a new shroud and painted the boom. I overhauled my main boom blocks and greased their reluctant shafts. I shifted the traveller and tried to fit it more securely, but to no avail. It had never been the same since the shark had torn it out, but it was serviceable. By evening, all was shipshape, not counting the hull and a few bits and pieces I could perform in my off-watch hours at sea. The jaunty little cutter was straining at her tether, longing for a less peaceful element. I had managed my time through the day with such circumspection as to even include catching a mess of fish for the cats and Gorky between chores. Gorky was getting so spoiled that he refused to go out and forage any more. but while we were anchored in the circular cove, he flew out for a constitutional among the towering ledges, leaving the deck safe for Flotsam and Jetsam. My cats, gorged and thoroughly at peace in dreams, lay curled in the folds of the mainsail. Occasionally they bestirred themselves and waddled back to their potty pot, a sandbox I had built for them at the fantail. After, they would saunter as though accidentally upon the fish, and in a matter of saying, oh well, there's nothing else to do, they would gnaw languidly on each of the two varieties. After this came experiments in luxurious ways of sleeping. They sprawled on the warm decks, they relaxed in the shade of the rail, or they wandered below to the cool of the forepeak. Those cats were spoiled rotten, Heaven help them if they should ever have to go back to civilised life and table scraps. Though I wasn't on a sightseeing tour, I was completely taken with the uniqueness of Tagus Cove. Why it isn't a famous scenic spot, I don't know. It is roughly a hundred boat lengths across, shored in by precipitous cliffs. In its lofty seams, queer species of birds nest themselves and echo each other in a constant chorus. The cove is really the crater of a dead volcano with its seaward wall washed out. Tagus is lonesome and mysterious. In her clear waters swim sharks, seals, mantas, sea lions, stingrays, sailfish, eels and penguins. Yes penguins, I saw a pair of them and I have since been corroborated by a fisherman who has seen them there as well. They were smaller than ones I have seen in Cape Town and the falcons. They swam beneath the keel, squirming with necks stretched after fish. They bobbed up several times, but were too busy to notice the new arrival in the cove. Another attraction of Tagus is the arrangement of names painted in various positions over her riven surface. They run into dozens and reflect the ever-constant quest of adventure, long considered dead, and erroneously. I can remember, even yet, a score of them easily... It is obviously a tradition for boats visiting the archipelago to autograph in some peculiar spot the challenging walls of the cove. I had promised people in Panama I would display Pagan's name in bold hull white on a prominent ledge, and I set about finding an appropriate spot. At the far end of the cove, on its northern rim, I saw a rocky platform, behind which appeared footing secure enough to wend up into the high ledges, I climbed into my rubber raft and rowed over with the light metal oars. From the low ledge, shoaling sharply into the water, a young sea lion waddled and dived and watched me with eyes above the water in the same way people stare at foreigners. He didn't appear frightened. In fact, he climbed back onto the ledge close behind me. As bucket and brush in hand, I began the ascent into the deformed lava clefts. Well up, I came upon a flattened space. A few feet above it was the shapeless barren terrain of the island towering over and away all to my right was a great locked off crater apparently burned out looking back through the tight walls of the crevasse i could see my little boat fetching snugly to her makeshift anchor like a peanut in a wash tub she was foil to the placid blue and gnarled varicolour color of the cavernous walls from the corner of my eye i saw a jerking movement near my feet A jagged spiny rock rolled over. With ghost-like mysteriousness, it moved. It waddled smoothly over the rocks, then stopped as if in death. A great black eye stared blankly from its head held high. A notched tongue flicked from its jagged head. Suddenly, with the quickness of a cat, it turned and spat at me with a black mouth. The black tongue flicked again. It looked like a lizard, but it moved like a dragon. It was easily five feet long. It was spiny along the back, gruesomely wrinkled, had finger-like hands and a long, listless tail. It perched, not moving a muscle, glaring at me. In all my life, I had seen nothing like it. I could only remember what I had heard in Panama. Someone had said that in the Galapagos were prehistoric species of animals. A man named Darwin had come here once and pronounced them different. Whatever it was he said, they did, they did, I believe it. I was looking at one of the results. I wouldn't have been surprised had this thing coughed fire. I would only have stumbled more clumsily than I did, for in confusion and bewilderment my step went awry and I fell all over myself, but mostly in the bucket of paint. The very response to fear engendered fear and I went slipping and falling down over the sharp volcanic boulders I nearly landed aboard the sea lion as I ran out onto the ledge. In horror, he hurtled himself into the soft water. In a fury of oar-stroking, I was beside Pagan and aboard. No sooner on deck than the cove lost its appeal. The walls looked foreboding. What a place to be alone in. Even the cats sensed an uncertainty. They squatted in fuzzy balls, jerking their whiskers nervously. The sun was behind Narborough. The cove was becoming a shadow. It was so still, it shrieked. To the devil with this place, I said to the cats. Then I saw it. Beneath the keel it went, a slimy, ghost-like shadow in the paling day. The same lizard or a creature similar, swimming. Its arms and legs were folded to its body much as you would hug yourself. It propelled itself solely with the long tail in a wavy motion, and it slithered with the ease of a snake. That was enough for me. I threw off the stops from the sails, hoisted them to the full, grappled the heavy anchor chain into a lump on deck and dumped the clumsy wooden anchor atop it. As dark, crowded close, I passed from the placid waters of the sinister cove to the piling whitecapped seaward. I pointed away from the mammoth volcano of Narborough, making for sea room to the south. Dinner that night, potluck as usual, was a can of diced carrots gulped wholesomely from the can. I ate at the tiller, steering by foot. Pagan danced on her tacks to southward. Within three hours, I estimated I had cleared Narborough to southward. I trimmed sails on the port tack and filled away, close-hauled into the southwest on the long leg that would clear the lower western bulge of Abamal. The Ponderous Isle lies like a diving amoeba on the meridian of 91 degrees west, I planned to tack around her in the night so as to catch some shut eye during the broad reach to Floriana the flowing day with tiller lashed and sails trimmed. Morning sun, one hour high, found me well under Abamal. Floriana, seemingly near but far away, was a grey hump forty miles on the starboard bow. I wanted to be fetched up to the anchor by dusk in Post Office Bay. There was a current to buck. And despite a nice wind, it meant a day crammed full of work at the tiller without sleep. I crowded on full sail and settled back for the day of yachting along the southern reaches of the Galapagos. Late in the day, with the last of twilight to pilot myself into the quiet harbour, I rounded its northern point and opened up Post Office Bay. This peaceful harbour is a crescent of water about a mile deep and the same width. To the left, as I came down its central road, lay a clump of islets. Ahead, a sandy beach, slightly back of it an ugly, disintegrating shack. A little way along, beside the famous white barrel attached to a stake. Beyond, the beach grew a motley array of straggly, barren bush, and the remnants of an ancient trail with which I wasn't interested. I dropped the hook fairly close in and rowed ashore immediately, I hastened down the beach to the parched ornamental barrel and inserted my bulky letter to Mary. Attached to it was a five dollar bill by a rubber band. Five dollars from my small remaining funds was a lot, but I wanted Mary to get that letter. And if five dollars would insure it, and I felt it would, then the money didn't matter. I stood by the traditional landmark for a moment wondering if the letter would ever reach Mary. Nights was crowding in. Pagan was a blur in the water. I didn't like it ashore here any more than at Tagus. As I rode out to Pagan, I was oblivious to the dismal countenance of the surroundings or the growing cold. My mind was across the Pacific. It was also with the letter in the barrel. An unholy melancholy was on me. As I swept with the futile remorse of great desire, hindered by need of lengthy patience and burdened by uncertainty. I went to bed early and silenced my quarrels with circumstances by a full night's sleep knowing that the next night would find me rushing downhill to westward. Along about noon the following day, my work was finished on Pagan's hull. She lay careened on the short beach, partially shored up by a water cask. Her shapely hull was scraped free of marine growth and coated with the last of my boot topping. The slack tide was crawling up the planking. As the keel shifted uneasily on the hard bottom, I tested my kedge and prayed that she would hold. In a few moments my boat was borne up and she eased away to her anchorage. I hastily hanked on the jib and cleared all lines for the one-man scramble necessary to trim Pagan for departure. I took one final look around at the sombre anchorage and turned peremptorily to my halyards and sheets, anchor line and tiller. Chapter 14 Trade Winds by dusk of July 23rd, I had made a good offing from Floriana. I stood due south to the cluster of lifeless cones on Abamal. Sometime around midnight, I expected to nose free of the westernmost point of charred lava forms and push into the sea stretch to westward, 3,000 miles of open water to my next landfall, the Marquesas Islands. The wind was in the south. Pagan slid blithely over a beneficent sea. The end of the Galapagos bird squadrons bent their homeward course around the mast and swooped away sternward. Darkness curtained off the last glimpse of the ash heap I suppose I shall ever have. The heavens cast themselves with a measles of guiding lights. A waning moon softened the night. The ocean undulated lightly at the behest of a fresh breeze. The spill of wind out of the sail made my skin tingle. The night was made glorious in the thought that I was nudging into the locale of the trade winds, that I was starting across the big ocean to Mary. The seas ahead of me were well known for their tranquility. The current, though, setting to the northwest for the nonce, would soon straighten out and shove me due west at an average rate of 30 miles daily, free of charge. With the wind expected to push me at a rate of 90 to a 100 miles a day, I would be amassing a daily average of 130 miles, wonderful for my purpose of speed across the ocean. That night was the most roseate of the whole voyage. A letter was on its way to Mary explaining all. The hull was clean and sliding blissfully through the seas. I had gaffed a great sea turtle early in the afternoon, so I would have fresh meat for three days. After that, I would have dried meat, sun-dried after the style of Indian jerky for the full passage to the Marcheses. The weather was lovely. What more, excepting the presence of my wife, could I ask? Unhappily, my bliss was to be short-lived. I had overlooked the fact that first, I would have to find the trade winds. In the eastern Pacific, the trades don't always reach as far north as the equator. They are where you find them. In between is an airless patch known as the doldrums. Trudging across the doldrums into the trades is a sore-footed task. When you pick up a cat's paw for a few hours, you think you're in the trades. Then suddenly the wind elopes and the ensuing glassiness of the sea, it's silence. The boat's unending clatter run roughshod over your nerves. A slatting sail, rattling blocks, slapping halyard, slack sheets have an indescribable nuisance value. Each calm found me drifting with the current to the north. Not once did a fresh wind curve the sails and bend Pagan to her work, but that I felt it was at last the trades. Again and again, however, the wind died away. In a few days, I found myself north of the line. The tremendous letdown of the trades was doubly exasperating, since I had expected such a sterling performance from them. My intention had been to stay close to the equator in sailing west, to avail myself Of the strong westerly current near it even 75 miles south of the line the extra push on the keel slacks off a dozen miles daily better to go south and lose some force of current than to stay up here in constant calms on a heat reflecting sea reconciled to the wisdom of a steady wind rather than a stronger current i waited on the next wind it came not at once and not steadily but in faltering episodes each time, under flattened sails and a neutral tiller, I hauled into the southwest. With each puff of wind, I added to my southing. With each calm, I drifted back north again. The doldrums played with me as a cat devils with a mouse. Hours on end, I drifted under spars, stripped to the standing rigging, unable to bear the monotony of flapping sailcloth and clattering tackle. I couldn't read, I couldn't nap, I couldn't think. I could only grope with slit eyes hour on hour for a hint of wind on the polished water. At the onset of a stir of air, I ran up every square inch the rigging could hold and nurtured every pulse beat out of the sky, pushing doggedly on in search of the diffident trades. On the afternoon of july 27th four days out of the galapagos irritation aboard reached its climax when gorky after several weeks of languishment on pagan suddenly soared from the deckhouse and made a beeline for the horizon to eastward he departed with too much energy and determination for it to be a routine flight i watched him to the last to the point where he sparkled in the white glare then dropped below the horizon that night I made a sad entry in the log. Still three more days ground painfully on my hopes. An occasional sky breath teased me, and I sat on the days on deck, gnawing at dried strips of the turtle and playing at patience. Then, quite suddenly, the wind in a summary movement jumped out of the southeast. I eased away the sheets for the very first time and caught the breeze astern, and with my way on, ran down the wind. It was a pleasure to see Pagan actually running off before it. I put her on a course between west and west-southwest so that she would make the traverse, arriving off the Marcheses in nine degrees south latitude. That night, I exultantly entered the momentous news in the logbook, the first happy entry in seven days. My noon sight for August 4th, the twelfth day out, put me a thousand and ten miles offshore, a greater distance than I had travelled in the thirty days from Perlas to Galapagos. Hereafter followed two thousand miles of the pleasantest sailing I probably shall ever experience. For days on end the boat sailed itself. The only times I came on deck were practically of necessity. Pagan ran off before the wind, chasing columns of wind-pushed rollers and wind-driven clouds that never varied. In short, she sailed it as harbor circumnavigators do it on yacht club verandas. Life those days ran on an amazingly even keel. At sunup, I always came topside to collect the night's catch of flying fish trapped on deck. During the night, the prow slicing open the water sent them skittering like quail from the wave tops, and often they flew blindly into the sails and expired in the wastes or on the forepeak. Never a morning, but there was at least one. If more than one were found, I enjoyed fresh fish, otherwise the hungry moors of my flotsam and jepson yawned. The flying fish is delicious food. I found them bony but worth the pains incident to enjoying their soft, sweet meat. I liked them best boiled in salt water and eaten with ketchup and crackers. They were delicious fried in bacon fat too. Many was the time, with only one fish found on deck, I regretted having my hungry kittens aboard. Out there, I had lots of time on my hands, far more than from Perlas to Galapagos. Keeping my plucky little cutter eating at the Westing was routine work of a few minutes each day. With sails curving full and tiller lashed slightly aweather, Pagan floated along unheeded and free at a laughing speed. Each morning and night, I glanced at the compass at some time in the day I sauntered over the sloping deck from stern to bow and back with eyes aloft, searching out a weakness that might interfere with the peace and purpose of my little Pacific world. Here too, I usually found all okay. No more work till next day. I altered the lashings on the tiller, but a very few times the whole crossing. Not once did I lower sail or reef down. The only real work of the cruise was with chafing gear on the shrouds to protect the sail from wearing through. I know there is a way of using rope yarn to make chafing gear but being a greenhorn I didn't know how it was done and I I couldn't figure out how to do it so I ripped up my two bed sheets into one foot long strippings and wrapped them around the shrouds as a sort of padded sleeve. I bound each pad with string at top and bottom and middle then scaled the mast and slid them up the wire while the sail chafed and made them fast to the shroud itself with line again. They did me yeoman service My sails right to the last were as good as the day I swung round before the southeast trades. The weather was ideal. The days were warm and fresh, bathed by sun and the purest air. The nights were cooled by the chill current under the keel. The cool of night was a sleep-inducing cool, just enough to need a blanket and clothes on deck. I came often on deck for biological necessity. This I took care of by using the bumpkin spread, I kept a board with a sizeable hole in it on the stern. When the need arrived, I laid the board on the bumpkin arms and straddled it, saddle style, with the stern post for a horn. About the only other time I came on deck was to navigate or bask in the sun, watching the dolphin at their kill or to play with the cats. Now that Gorky was gone, they had free run of the boat. For hours they would romp over the canvas covered decks. I would crawl along the cabin tops, spying on their kittenish whims and gambols. When Flotsam and Jepson were out on deck, I always spent time below making friends with Stirlway. He was a most reluctant fellow, and no wonder. The kittens were in constant prowl about his abode. Things had come to such a pass that I was forced to place his food and drink inside his house. So seldom was it safe for him to venture forth for it. I tried painfully to teach him to nibble from my fingers, but with the kittens aboard it was a lost hope. He was trustless. The poor fellow had gone cynical, He was disorganised, he was considered friend and enemy alike, and chose to fritter away his life in isolation. Since I was only on deck for a few hours each day, the remainder devolved to whatever suited my fancy. I perused everything from crossword puzzles to Shakespeare and Mary's old letters which I kept in my sea bag. When I tired with reading, I pieced together the same jigsaw puzzle over and over again. For fun, I turned it over and did it in the hard way, These days of peace and speed were dreamlike in their consistency. I was never bored. It is impossible for a person with an active mind to be bored with his own company. The days went too quickly. I hadn't time to do all I'd set out to do each morning. Besides, my early days of work had forced me upon myself and the aloneness was something I had not known before. An average day went along something like this. I wakened usually with the first greying of dawn, inspected the course from the compass beside my bunk, and went on deck to check the tiller and sails, and to look for flying fish that might have landed aboard in the night. If there were two fish, and nearly always there were, I gave one to the kittens in the morning and one in the afternoon. If more than two, it meant fresh provisions for breakfast, either fried in bacon fat or boiled in salt water. Invariably, breakfast consisted of a cooked cereal. I mixed about six parts of fresh water with one of salt, boiled it on the primus, and stirred in the cereal. Cornmeal, oatmeal, and such, with a heaping spoon each of powdered milk and sugar. I ate most of my meals out in the cockpit in the wash of the tropic air. I whiled the morning at reading, at playing with my crew, at coaxing my hopeless passenger or at watching the death chases out ahead of the bows. Lunch was the simplest meal of the day. It was only a matter of marking an X on the stores list, then selecting a likely looking can from the former icebox. The thing I liked about the noon meal was the surprises I often got when I opened the wrapperless cans. In the early afternoon, I napped. In mid-afternoon, I took a sunset and pinpointed myself on the chart. In late afternoon i sat on the cabin peering around the sea rim in hope of a smudge of smoke or a sail or i sat watching the lonely impersonal seabirds who glide their lives away over the barren pacific wastes my night meal was a warm one i fried a slice of bacon or ham and heated something from a can there was always a pot of coffee or tea with which to wash down a couple of hard sea biscuits often i made a kind of stew with leftovers and a bit of salt pork or fish. In the evening, after checking the set of the sails and the lashed tiller, I lay on my bunk to read for an hour in the dim light of my barn lantern swaying from the overhead. When I tired, I merely pulled up the blanket and blew the lantern out. I didn't have to undress for bed. I didn't wear clothes in the tropics. But one day I was jostled from my settled world. I found during my daily inspection that the bob stay had loosened at the stem and that the chain plate was dragging free from the end of the bowsprit. It was a job of the type a novice knows nothing about, but which cries out to be mended. I looked it over and started repairs with my usual trial and error methods. I lowered myself into the water and fidgeted and tinkered trying to join the connections of stay and stem head while the rollers of the trade wind skewed me from side to side of the bow. In two hours of futile fidgeting and cursing underwater, I decided to give it up. But it was a thing one couldn't give up. The bobstay bolstered the bowsprit; It, in turn, supported the topmast stay, which, in turn, secured the mast against rearing backward and snapping off. I couldn't hazard being dismasted out on these lonely wastes, so back to work I went, It turned out to be a job more distasteful than shoveling fertilizer. Need is a harsh driver. The need to repair this implement drove me to a merry ride, hanging onto the bowsprit and clinging to the stem head. But working underwater on the dancing object was worse. Eventually, I got the ring bolt fitted into the cutter's stem and dragged myself over the rail. The jib rattled up the headstay. Other sails were soon a trim and curved to the wind, and with laughing heels, Pagan tore away to the blank horizon. There then followed more days of peaceful sailing. Pagan scudded on before the southeast trades with hardly a variation in wind and sea. Ahead, shoals of flying fish sprinted from the sea and floated away to port and starboard, slipping into the wave tops one at a time or en masse like birdshot. And what masses of flying fish they were i was amazed as every hundred yards day on day a gleaming squadron of them flashed into the sun and glided horizonward in a dozen directions harassing them from dusk to dawn was old death and his lesser dolphin who prowled ahead of the bow and streaked into the unsuspecting shoals for two thousand miles now i had watched this game of stalking and hunting a vicious circle of dog eat dog among the creatures under the sea. The dolphin fish has a blunt, stolid face, trailed by a beautifully live body. Along his back lies a web-like fin which ordinarily lies flat but which he flares into use in the hairpin manoeuvres employed against the flying fish. I've sat on deck hours on end watching these fascinating creatures giving the flying fish the chase, singling out a lone flyer The dolphin will stay on his tail for 500 yards before giving up. As a flying fish clears the water in mortal haste, his apt enemy is just behind and below. The stalk is on, a stalk of speed and thrills where a single slowing or stopping by the flying fish means death. Occasionally the dolphin sails free of the water himself for a 20-foot leap to see his victim. Spotting his game ahead in the air, he returns to his element and with a few powerful thrusts, rides up under him, eyeing him, waiting for the drop into the water. As the flying fish falls from his glide, he is set upon, and there ensues a terrifying encounter of champing teeth, flaring fins, swirling wakes, and the dolphin comes away grinning. I've seen this tragic episode a hundred times and only a dozen feet away. Once I saw a flying fish nipped neatly in half by old death, In a flash it was done, in fact with such suddenness that the fish didn't suspect what had happened. Another dolphin took him in on the run before the poor flying fish had time to realise he was already half eaten. Once a huge squid bolted from the water off a port and glided a hundred feet in toward Pagan. On plunging he espied a grim assassin close behind and threw himself horror stricken twenty feet straight up into the air. The dolphin spun around and with a terrific thrust hurtled himself up out of the water. They met in mid-air, the dolphin shooting up and the squid falling. The shock of impact nearly choked the dolphin. What was left of the squid fell 30 feet away and was gobbled up by another dolphin as it hit the surface. Another time, one of the largest flying fish I've seen, and judging by his size, a veteran of many a fracas with death, soared out of a way far ahead. I watched him soar on the wind, making a clean half-circle that only the wariest pursuant could follow. He slowed himself in mid-air and made to plop into an oncoming sea. What he didn't know was that he was followed not by one but by four dolphin, shouldering one another aside for the choice lead spot. He settled lightly in the water. there was a rush, a flurry of fins and flukes, the chop and smack of spiny teeth. And confusion so great that it seemed the dolphin themselves didn't know which one had snared the prize another day a shoal of flying fish were flushed very near the bow as the dolphin streaked among them in their berserker way the flying fish literally went crazy some of them leaped straight up only to fall straight back others in their terror only stumbled along the surface unable to break into flight one small squadron bolted off the water straight into pagan sails 12 of them Old Death and his crew often help me out like this. One day Old Death ran short into a small flying fish. They met face to face. Then the chase of death began. I could see them from where I stood on the cabin peering into the air clear water. The little fish skittered to his wings and soared in toward Pagan's beam. The gnarled old killer flashed in pursuit. He lunged into the air and struck the fish as he sailed, upsetting him, tumbling him into the sea. A scrimmage for life ensued and the little fish got somehow into the air again. Old Death in a rage was close behind. Suddenly, the flying fish saw he was gliding straight into Pagan on the beam. He wavered in flight. Beneath him was the inexorable Hunter. Ahead, Pagan's hard, dry decks. He could have dropped to the water and jockeyed for a new takeoff, but he didn't. He knew the outcome. I'm sure the decision was his to smash his head against the cabin and drop, quivering to the deck. Not a day passed, but that a number of such deathly encounters occurred at eye distance away. On numerous occasions, when an overwhelming desire for a change from flying fish obsessed me, I sought to harpoon the dolphin fish, but I landed only three of them the whole trip. They are explosive energy keyed to high sensitivity. Hardly does a spear near them when they thrash away. I speared old death at least ten times. Each thrust into his ancient sides proved only another tattered scar, and didn't diminish his love of Pagan's company a jot. He followed me to the very reef where I nearly drowned. Those of the dolphin I speared I cut into strips and dried on strings tied between deckhouse and traveller. The meat kept indefinitely if redried often enough. I alternated this with my decreasing supply of turtle, which too I had kept drying over and over again. During this time about a week out of the Marcheses, I fell often in revere, with the past, with the future, the present. I reacted on the immensity of watery wastes by seeking an escape through thinking. Long hours out there lent themselves to retrospect and iteration. I fell to thinking of the days of crowded happiness, of my romance with Mary, our courtship, our marriage, the whole panorama of unfortunate circumstances that had kept us apart, but which I was now overcoming in crossing the Pacific. I sat on the cabin, lounging under the sun and breeze, listening to the slap and smack of water against the planking and watching the ripple thrown out by the bow. Sitting so, it was easy to think. Thoughts came uncalled for. What I thought wasn't important, but the fact that I thought was vastly important. The morning of August 18th found me an estimated three days out of the Marchese's. My 90 page logbook was nearly filled. I was 85 days out of Panama and this was just five days from the day I had expected to arrive in Sydney when I sailed. Mary was expecting me. I hoped my letter from the Galapagos had reached her telling of the upset to my timetable and explaining the new arrival date. My sights at noon of August 20th estimated my position at 9 degrees 5 minutes south latitude, 138 degrees 50 minutes west longitude. The Marchese's were hard by. I climbed the mast often and swept every horizon for an object greyer than the clouds and stiller than the rearing seas. By nightfall, land hadn't hove in sight. There were plenty of land birds around, bosun birds, gannets, goonies, manawar birds, terns. I was certain that not too far south of me was the lush tropical island of Hiva Oa. I had heard spoken of it in Panama, and somewhere near probably just under the horizon on the starboard bow, was Uahuka, and just to westward, Nukahiva. That night I came on deck often to sweep the frail horizon to starboard for land and listen for the hollow boom of trade wind seas on coral reefs. I neither saw nor heard anything, but I knew it was there. Daylight found me under the shadow of land to the north, land after 29 days. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long-distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash themariner, and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews, and also the Spartan Online seamanship Training Syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45-minute to one-hour video, very nitty-gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat how systems work how to navigate electronic gear dealing with problems fixing things the engine it's all in there Um, the last i guess is youtube if you go over to youtube forward slash the mariner also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to so don't let it just be in the stories connect with us on social media connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself wherever you are Whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds, and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out, how to safely and effectively take on a long-distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash themariner, and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews, and also the Spartan Online Seamanship Training Syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45-minute to one-hour video, very nitty-gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete Tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate, electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, The last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash the mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, Whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers.